A good place to start an introduction on mitzvos is the Talmud in Makos, on page 23a. The Talmud tells us that the Torah, if you were to count out the amount of instructions, commandments, mitzvos that exist in the Torah, you'll have 613. How does the Talmud know that? From a very famous verse in Deuteronomy, Torah, Tziva, Lanu, Moshe. Torah was commanded to us by Moshe. And the numerical value of the word Torah, as we know in Hebrew, every letter has an assigned number. The four letters of the word Torah equal numerically 611. And thus, when the Torah tells us that Torah was given to us by Moshe, 611 were given to us by Moshe. Why 611? Because there's two more mitzvahs, the first two of the Ten Commandments at Sinai, were given to us directly by God. And thus, 611 plus 2 equals 613. That's the extent of the Talmud's counting of the 613 mitzvahs. Now, the Talmud adds that there are some mitzvahs which are positive mitzvahs, mitzvahs assay, and there are some mitzvahs that are negative mitzvahs, uh, restrictions, uh, commandments of things that you cannot do. And those equal to 248 positive mitzvahs, do this, do that, do the other. 365 negative mitzvahs, restrictions, prohibitions. Says the Talmud, this is not some arbitrary number. The reason why we have 248 positive mitzvahs is because in the human body there are 248 limbs. And the reason why we have 365 negative mitzvahs, restrictions, prohibitions, is because that is the amount of days that there are in a year. So, in essence, there is... 365 days a year, and each one of them has a corresponding mitzvah, a prohibition. And there's 248 limbs in the human body. Each one has a cor- corresponding positive mitzvah. In fact, the commentators speculate as to which mitzvahs correspond to which limb. So, for example, the Maharsha tells us that the heart, which is the epicenter of the human body, which pumps blood to every part, gives life, so to speak, to every part of the human body, well, that equates to the first of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, to believe in God. Because every mitzvah is given life with emuna, with faith. If you don't have faith, just like if you don't have the heart, you cannot have life in any part of the human body. Just as the heart pumps blood to the furthest extremities of the human body, so to the emuna, faith pumps spiritual lifeblood into all the mitzvahs. That's what the Marsha says. Similarly, he says, the second of the Ten Commandments, not to have any other gods, not to have anything that counteracts the belief, the moon that we have in God, that corresponds to Yom Kippur. That's the one of the 60, uh, 365 days a year. So this, he doesn't go through which days correspond to which mitzvos and which limbs correspond to which positive mitzvos. But there is this idea that the human life, both who we are, our persona, as our body, and the life that we live in, the 365-day rotating cycle, that corresponds to the mitzvos. I had a theory, uh, the Talmud tells us, that the maximum amount of time that someone could spend in Gehenna, in purgatory, in spiritual cleansing afterlife, is a year. My theory is that every day... The people who are in purgatory are being cleansed from the transgression corresponding to that day. 
And therefore, there's 365 transgressions. Therefore, the maximum amount of, if someone transgressed every single solitary one of them, then they need 365 days to be totally cleansed. That's my theory. I didn't see it anywhere, but it sounds a bit right. Now, the Zohar, which is the more mystical, Kabbalistic parts of the Oral Torah, tells us that the 365 number actually has another meaning to it. And that is that just like the human body consists of limbs, of bones, it also has sinews or muscles or tendons, things that kind of hold it all together. And according to the Torah's count, the amount of sinews that we have in our body is 365. Thus says the Zohar and other commentators agree to this idea that really all parts of the 613 mitzvot correspond to the human. 248 limbs, 365 sinews, all 613 together creates a perfect kind of complete human. And the idea being that when we do mitzvot, we are trying to build a spiritual avatar of ourselves. We're trying to construct our identity, who we are going to be for, for forever. We're, we're building our eternal persona. When someone dies, their body dies, but their spiritual self lives on. In order for their spiritual self to be complete, it has to have all 613 parts of that spiritual self in fine working order. And therefore, that entity, that being, is going to be us in the spiritual world. That's what the commentators say. And thus, the mitzvos are actually the ways that we can build who we are going to be for eternity. Now, one of the questions that people always ask is, okay, if you count the mitzvot, there's some mitzvot that are only for men and some mitzvot only for women and some only for for people living in Israel and some only for Kohens and some only for Levites and some only for kings. There's all kinds of mitzvot that us today cannot possibly fulfill. And the Talmud gives an answer to that question by saying that when someone studies about a mitzvah, then they it's as if they fulfilled it, even if they're not able to fulfill it. So if someone, for example, is not a farmer, which I don't believe many people listening here are, I could be mistaken, but certainly not a farmer living in Israel, there's a whole host of laws that they cannot fulfill. However, they can study. And when we study those mitzvot, we're kind of tapping into that spiritual reservoir and imparting within ourselves some of those lessons and hopefully use the power of the study of the mitzvah to equal the power of the mitzvah itself and garner those eternal benefits from them. So the objective of this project is to try to study the mitzvot. Of course, mitzvot really comprise everything we have in the Torah. Uh, but I think that there is a benefit to get it like a snapshot of a mitzvah. Like just to understand the basic framework of the mitzvah, what it is, what it entails, how is it fulfilled, what is the meaning behind it. I think we might try to do some of them in bunches, for example. We have the mitzvah of the pastoral offering, the Karm Pesach that appears in the middle of Exodus. There's a lot of different laws, which each one of them comprises its own mitzvah, uh, but we can kind of look at those laws in bunches, so that way it won't take us necessarily 613 weeks to finish this. Maybe we could do it a bit sooner. 
But I think it's 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 very valuable to try to get a picture of the Torah in general and the Torah commandments in particular in the various areas of life that they govern and some of the meaning behind it and the basic framework of its fulfillment. Now, the Rambam, he helped us a lot in our pursuit. Anyone who wants to study about mitzvot, maybe one of the first places you start is the Rambam. Because up to the time of the Rambam, no one really made a serious effort in figuring out what exactly falls under the category of a mitzvah and what falls into some sort of subcategory of another mitzvah. Uh, because if you actually count how many things you need to do, if you want to follow every dictum of Torah law, it won't be in the hundreds, it'll be in the thousands, maybe in the tens of thousands. Uh, so what's a mitzvah? What's a subcategory of an existing mitzvah? There's lots of laws in the laws of Shabbos, but is Shabbos one mitzvah? Is it a million mitzvahs? What is it? So the Rambam writes a book called the Book of Mitzvahs, where he begins by first laying out the principles of what constitutes a mitzvah and what is a law that's either doesn't fall into the category or falls into a subcategory of another mitzvah. So he begins his work with what he calls the 14 sharashim, 14 roots, the 14 principles of how to classify mitzvahs. 14 rules that he's going to follow to say, okay, this will either be its own mitzvah or not be a mitzvah. So for example, the first law, the first root is mitzvahs of rabbinic origin are not going to count. So if you have a mitzvah to read the Megillah, on Purim, or to light the menorah on Hanukkah, those are mitzvos, but they're not included in the original 613, because they're not deduced from a verse in the Torah. Uh, that's one. Uh, other ones, for example, there's mitzvos that applied only when the Jewish people were in the wilderness. They're not mitzvos that are applicable forever. They're not permanent, and those wouldn't count. So another example, he says, if there's, let's say, a mitzvah that has within it another reason for the mitzvah. So that's all one. Mitzvah, reason for the mitzvah, that's all lumped together as only, only, it's only counted once for the count of 613. Another example here. Commandments that encompass the entire Torah are not counted. So for example, there's a verse, there's many verses. Observe everything that I've told you. That sounds like a commandment, but it's not specific. It's general. It applies to everything. A general mitzvah will not be counted as one of the 13. Of course, it's part of the collective corpus of what God wants from us. He wants us to observe everything. But that in itself is not counted as uh, as one. What about the mitzvahs that are repeated? Abraham is told to circumcise his son, and that's done forever. And later on, we read about the instruction of circumcision again. Is that one? Is that two? It's only one. Laws of Shabbos. How many times do you talk about laws of Shabbos? Dozens. Is that one? Or is that two? It's only one. So he gives a whole list over there. And once he builds his framework of how he's going to assemble the 613, he goes on to list them. Not only that, he lists them in topical order. And it seems quite likely that he'd list them in order of importance. So, for example, mitzvah number one is the mitzvah to believe in God. And then it goes to love God and to fear God and things like that, which are much more, as we would imagine, more central to the rest of the Torah. 
than uh, the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird before taking away the babies. And that was pretty much accepted universally. This is the list of the 613. Until 100 years later, the Ramban Nachmanides wrote a response to these principles. And he comes up with a slightly different calculation. And he writes in the end of his commentary on the Rambam, he says, well, here's a list of 17 mitzvos that the Rambam forgot to add. And what he does, he swaps in 17 new mitzvos that the Rambam would include or would not include in his list. Uh, and he takes out 17 the Rambam brains and he has 17 new ones. Regardless, most of these particular debates, there's no, there's no real relevant difference if it's a its own mitzvah or a subcategory of the other mitzvah. But I think for us to kind of go through them and see a little snapshot, a little snippets about the mitzvah, the basic uh, framework of the mitzvah, I think is very valuable. And kind of using these these uh, structures would be very helpful. Now, about 100 years later, in the, uh, the end of the 13th century, a book of unknown authorship was written. It's called the Sefer HaChinuch, the Book of Chinuch. Chinuch means education or priming. And it uses the Rambam's system of 613, but organize it in a different way. Organize it based upon how those mitzvahs appear in the Torah. So the first mitzvah is not to believe in God. The first mitzvah is to be fruitful and multiply, because that's the first mitzvah that appears in Genesis. And then he would go on from there until you reach the mitzvah right in the Torah scroll, the last mitzvah given to us in Deuteronomy. And the reason why he did that, his goal, and he writes this in his introduction, his goal is that when, when people come to shul on Shabbos and they read about the parsha, they should be able to discuss, well, how many mitzvahs appear in this week's parsha? This past week we learned uh, parsha's tisaitse, 63 separate mitzvahs in one parsha. You go through the whole book of Genesis, all 12 parshas, you have three, three mitzvahs. Not to say that there's any less valuable information there, it just means that the for this strict counting of how we count mitzvahs, only three of them appear in the book of Genesis. Uh, but not only that, his innovations in this book are not limited to just his order, but the way he presents the mitzvah, what he does is, in a, in a very short format, he lists the mitzvah, and he gives you the underpinnings, the meaning behind the mitzvah, some of the ideas of how we understand what the mitzvah is supposed to do to us, and gives the basic framework of how you fulfill the mitzvah and to whom the mitzvah is applicable to. And he and he writes, he's like, it's not complete, and don't take it for... He's very uh, humble in his introduction, saying, well, I, I only an expert could have really written it, and I'm not really an expert, but I'm just doing it so that people have something to read on Shabbos. They can have something to talk about. But it became... Wildly popular, still is popular today. Art Scroll did a magnificent uh, commentary, uh, translation of it. It's in like 10 volumes. Uh, so they didn't go the brevity route. But I think that everyone seems to agree that's the best way if you want to just get a little window into every mitzvah is to follow the, the Sefer HaChinuch. Uh, I wanted to go through his introduction. Uh, so he begins with an essay on veracity of the Torah. Uh, he starts, he says, well, people believe testimony. Not only Jews, non-Jews. If, if there's witnesses that come to court and they testify 
against someone, then people believe them. And the more witnesses to a given event, the more credibility, legitimacy that has in the eyes of the onlookers. So he begins with kind of an essay of trying to, and again, it, it makes sense. He's trying, he's targeting not the scholars, but the regular people, the teenagers. And he's trying to explain to them the logic behind why we believe that the Torah is true based upon what everyone believes. Everyone believes that uh, testimony of people is reliable. Of course, it's only one person. Maybe it's questionable. Two people a little more reliable. A thousand people seems almost unimpeachable. You know, all of us believe that a man named Abraham Lincoln existed. But he died in, what, 1864? Well before any of us were born, or our grandparents were even born. We all, we all, the only reason why we, none of us question that existence is because of testimony. People who saw him, people who lived with him, people that lived in the country at the time, they gave testimony, passed it on to their children. And of course, that's 100 years ago. Uh, but if we don't rely on testimony, we don't know it's true. Was there a Roman Empire? There's a sign of the board, the Middle East then and the Middle East now. How do we know that? How do we know that there was something called the Byzantines? Did anyone ever meet a Byzantine? Or uh, an ancient Roman or a Greek person or a Sumerian or a... How do we know these people existed? The Great Persian Empire, we could talk about it for days. Did they even exist? And of course, the kind of, he's trying to break down, like, how do we know what we know? A lot of it is based upon testimony. We have a testimony of millions of people who were at the foot of the mountain, and they heard God talk to Moshe, and they heard, they heard the Ten Commandments from the, from the mouth of God, and they believed it with such commitment that they were willing to base their lives uh, on those principles, on those beliefs, and they passed it on to their children. And like he begins this work, of course it's a work about Torah, but he begins with the whole essay on, on kind of just showing how logical and how reasonable it is to buy in to accept the premise of our tradition. And then he goes on, he, he gives, you know, I, again, it's a very long piece, I don't want to read the whole thing, but I want to kind of pull out some nice little tidbits. He goes on and talks about, uh, he says, well, what are the people, the naysayers, the heritage? They say, well, it's not really true. Prove it to me now. How do we know? Maybe yes, maybe no. Show me a sign. If God exists, let him send a lightning bolt and kill me right now. Oh, he obviously doesn't exist, right? Those people existed then apparently as well. Um, so he says, he gives an interesting example. It's like a, there's um, a theological argument known as, uh, I think it's called Pascal's Wager. This idea came from a Christian source. This idea that you should believe in God because you don't really know. But if you're wrong, you're in big time trouble. If you don't believe in God and you're wrong, you're in 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 an eternal bind. But if you believe in God and you're wrong, well, how much do you really lose? That's his argument. And here we see that it actually predates him. He says the same argument over here. He says, suppose you came to a town and there's millions of people that say, don't drink from the water of the, uh, of the river or of the lake because it's poisonous. And everyone who tried to drink it died. And there's one guy. He's the, the, the wise guy. He's the f- physician. He's, he's brilliant and 
No one seems to be able to overcome them with logic. And he says, what are they talking about? They're all making up hogwash. It's not true. You drink it, it'll be totally fine. Obviously, people will not, they don't know, obviously, but people would trust the millions of people who are giving testimony and ignore the one savant who says it's fine. And he's trying to kind of get into the whole discussion of, okay, what's more believable? The savant, uh, the scientist, or the tradition? And he wants to make the argument that the tradition can even trump the evidence of what evidence you have on the ground. Uh, and therefore, he kind of uses that as his, 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 his launching point to his introduction by saying that to believe in the historicity and the veracity of the Torah based on tradition, it's, it's quite reasonable. And then he gets onto the question of why God gives Torah to just the Jews and not to everyone else, and why there's some instances that apply just to the Kohen and some just to the Levite and some just to the men and some just to the women. Uh, and then he goes on to a discussion about why our Jews have it so bad in this world, why are we suffering, and you have to also take this in context. We're dealing in the medieval times. Uh, there's crusades and blood libels and. Uh, expulsions and pogroms and book burnings and ghettoization and restrictions of how, of what you could do. And obviously there are, again, he's talking to, to teenagers and he's trying to explain kind of what the meaning behind it is. He talks about why that it cleanses sin and gives a, a, a few other answers. He discusses why the Olam is not overtly mentioned in the Torah. It's only hinted at here and, and here and there. Why is it not mentioned explicitly in the Torah? You give several answers to that. And, again, I don't want to... It's kind of hard to kind of summarize what he says. But my point is, is it would be advisable if people are interested in kind of getting a sense of the flavor, uh, of the style of the author. It's a very pleasant style. It's it's very fluid. It's written it's very, very sweetly, very easy very appealing uh, to read. I advise everyone to get a copy of uh, the introduction, kind of go through some of those arguments that he makes. Before we're going to embark on a study of this work, I think it's worthwhile. Uh, I read it over Shabbos. I've read it in the past before as well. It's it's very interesting, and it's it's again it's it's written like for us, like it's not dense. But I want to share one thing. This is one thing I got to share. He asked the question, "Well, why did God give us Torah?" The Almighty could have done a lot more other things with his time, with his Torah. Why does he give me us, humanity, frail humans, vulnerable and fallible humans? Why is he giving us the Torah? And he writes as well, why did God create the world? He gets into that discussion. Because God wanted to create something which is perfect. And in the world, he created angels. And angels are kind of what he calls all seichel. They're all intellect. And then it creates animals. And animals are all chomer. They're all, they're all materialistic. They're all instinct. And then it creates humans. And humans are half angel and half animal. Half eternal, spiritual, and half beast. And we're wrapped together in one. And the crux of God's plan for the universe revolves around this tension that exists within man. This hybrid creation, a being that could soar to such great spiritual heights and could descend 
to such terrible moral abysses. And that's the challenge. And the tool that he gives us to triumph our intellect over our instinct, that's the Torah. That's what he says. And the Torah kind of connects man to man's spiritual roots in heaven, to man's angelic half, and strengthens and, 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 and gives power to that side of the equation, and that will kind of overpower the other part that's drawing us down, the part that make, that's making us more similar to animals, and kind of kind of uplift us through the Torah. So I think it's a very valuable takeaway. A lot of people, you know, there's maybe a lot of answers to that question, why we have Torah. A simple answer could be, well, it makes civilization more civilized, makes society more palatable. But I think that's an incomplete answer because a lot of mitzvahs that don't seem to relate at all to betterment of society. I think this gives us a, uh, a window into maybe one avenue of the answer is that humanity itself, the, the human species, the human being is a conflicted entity by nature. And that's, of course, by design, but it's also malleable. People could be changed. And the tool that we have to change us to become more like our angel, the better angels of our nature, to move the needle in that direction, that is aided with Torah and with its mitzvos. So, uh, so that's a little bit of the introduction. I uh, encourage everyone to get their hands on a copy if they can of that introduction. I think it's worthwhile to read. And I uh, look forward to, uh, to going through the mitzvos uh, with the teachings of the, uh, the chinuch. Every mitzvah is going to kind of introduce the basic, the few basic laws about it, go into some of the meanings behind it. He himself writes, this is not everything there is to know. Like the real meaning is only God knows. But we could kind of speculate. We can kind of find some hints to the meaning and find a way to make them uh, a little bit more understandable to us. And hopefully we're going to sprinkle in as well, other issues or other questions or other interesting tidbits about that particular mitzvah and through this exercise, through this project, gain a deeper understanding of the beautiful Torah that the Almighty gave us.